If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. One of my favorite movies, one that I think Melinda and I watched at least 10, maybe 20 times while we were dating and engaged, is called The Princess Bride. I know some of you are familiar with it. Those of you that aren't should know that it is a story of giants, an evil prince, a six-fingered man, a battle of wits and sword, and a man in black who rescues a would-be princess. And at one point in the film, the central hero, Wesley, The man in black, he has been tortured nearly to death. In fact, he is not dead, but mostly dead, it is said. And his companions seek out a retired miracle worker who will uh, quickly restore his strength so that they can storm the castle and rescue the soon-to-be bride from a fate worse than death, marriage to the evil Prince Humperdinck. After assuring them of his abilities and concocting an edible chocolate-coated miracle pill, which will restore the hero's life, the miracle man sends the group off to achieve victory at the castle, applauding their courage and wishing them good fortune. And as they are out of earshot and well on their way, the wife of the miracle man asks him, Do you really think it'll work? To which he replies, It'll take a miracle. Now, the whole scene, in fact, the whole movie is meant to be played for laughs. I mean, it is a humorous action adventure. Unfortunately, what is not humorous is that very often Christians react with the same response of the miracle man when it comes to the prospects of Christian ministry. It's going to take a miracle. Take the gospel to the nations so that Christ can build his church. It'll take a miracle. Share the gospel with hardened sinners so they can repent and find forgiveness with Christ. It'll take a miracle. Pull off four services on Easter Sunday, preparing for large numbers numbers of people to come in long-term future growth. It'll take a miracle. What we have, though, is a calling to do what we often believe is an impossible task. We have a calling to do the impossible. And what we have to do is not allow ourselves to become pessimistic and believe that ultimately nothing will change. There's a sense in which we look at the enormity of the task that is before us, both in the coming weeks and in the course of our life. We will be able, very often, unfortunately, to step back and say, boy, this is just, uh, you know, forget it. You know, there's no way we can do this. This is going to take, this is going to take a miracle. This is is just not, this is not going to happen. And the result is a kind of spiritual inertia that sets in where we're not even trying anymore because we just think nothing is ever going to change. But what that means is we've ultimately forgotten what the Bible tells us about God. God is not the God of easiness and predictability. He is the God of the impossible. He is the God who raises the dead back from life. He is the God who walks on the water and calms the storms. He is the God who stops the rotation of the earth so the sun can hang longer in the sky and his people will have more time to win a victorious battle. More than anything, God is the God of salvation for sinners. He takes the wretched, depraved people that we are who deservingly are bound for hell and he gives us a new heart and a new life and he transforms us into a righteous people who honor Christ. 
truth be told, there is simply no way what is going to happen next weekend. God is a sovereign God who moves and acts as he wills. But this we know, he is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of love who sent Christ to die for sinners, and he desires to save sinners through the proclamation of the gospel. And as we get ready for next weekend and any future ministry, we must remember this. Our success ultimately does not depend on us and what we do. The growth of this church, the healing of marriages, the raising of the next generation, the training of future leaders, these things do not ultimately depend on us, on our skills, on our abilities. What it depends on is our faithfulness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, it's only the gospel that can grow this church. It's only the gospel that can heal marriages and bring faith to the next generation and train leaders and so much more. The success of this church and its ministries will rise and fall on how faithfully we proclaim Christ in the gospel. So this morning, in light of that reality, and yet in light of the other reality that we often think, boy, this, what we want to do is just going to take a miracle. What I want to do is bring those two things together in such a way that you will be built up in your confidence in the gospel. You will not just see it as a message. It is a message but as a message that God has endued with the power to transform lives. So at the end of the day, we need not, we need not worry, we need not fear, we need not to, 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 to sit back idly doing nothing because we think nothing will change. Instead, I want us to be able to go forward with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, I want to unpack a couple of verses towards the middle of Romans chapter 1, but to get the context, I want us to read beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets of the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the, in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far, but, but have thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. This morning I want us to look at verses 16 through 17 
And I want us to do this so that we can see why it is so essential and why we can have confidence in proclaiming the gospel both to one another and to our world. So the first thing that I want us to see is this, that we should proclaim the gospel with unashamed confidence. We should proclaim the gospel with unashamed confidence. Paul begins in verse 16 by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, there is always the danger, particularly if we have grown up or have for the past several years uh, grown accustomed to reading the Bible. There is always the danger that things become commonplace. That what we're actually reading kind of uh, goes uh, through our eyes but past our brains somehow and we just kind of say, yeah, 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 you know, let, let, let's kind of move on. We, we, we kind of have a big picture uh, reading instead of actually thinking about the details of what we're actually reading. Just stop and think a minute about what Paul is saying. He is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now think about the experiences of Paul's life because of the gospel. In Philippi, Paul was imprisoned. In Thessalonica, he was chased out of town. He was smuggled out of Damascus and Berea. He was laughed at in Athens, considered foolish in Corinth, declared to be a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem, and nearly stoned to death in Lystra. Why? All for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now that in mind, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. None of these experiences deter him from preaching. He is completely unashamed of his message in Christ. And to be honest, even apart from Paul, it would have been easy to be ashamed of the gospel in the first century. When archaeologists excavated the ancient ruins of the city of Rome, they found a painting mocking Christianity. It was the picture of a slave bowing down before a cross with a donkey on it. Below was the caption, Alexa Menos worships his God. It is no surprise that in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, The Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This wasn't just a popular message that exploded everywhere that it went. Yes, the gospel was on the move in the first century. Yes, people were being saved. But it's not like the entire Roman uh, uh, empire became saved. Paul says it's foolishness. It's a message of foolishness to a lost world. So much so that Christ is pictured as a donkey in Roman graffiti. After all, gods don't die on crosses. Gods don't die in humiliation. They don't die shrung up on a Roman giblet somewhere. What's more, who believes in a man who comes back to life? You know, you hear people all the time trying to say, science and Christianity can be reconciled. Science and Christianity can be reconciled. And sure, you can be a good scientist and be a Christian, but at some point you have to come out of science. Because science says dead people don't come back to life. And the gospel says, oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, they do. Christ didn't just die on the cross, but he rose again on the third day. And that is why, in part, he is to be worshipped as God. Paul says this message of the gospel was foolishness to the world, and yet for those who believed it was life. 
The cross was not something to be embarrassed about. It was something to be cherished. Listen to the rest of what Paul says from 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Even in the face of ridicule, the early Christians loved what the cross stood for. The death of their king in their place for their sins to reconcile them to the one true and living God. It was a great irony that the king of all things was reigning over all things while hanging on a cross. Well, what about us today? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Well, I can't speak for every one of you, but if you just look at the face of evangelical Christianity in this world, if you look at those who are being interviewed on television, if you look at the most loud and most popular of so-called Christian speakers, the answer comes back, yes, we are ashamed of the gospel. You can watch preachers of megachurches being interviewed on television, and you can see them with smiles on their faces, joyfully answering questions, until it is put to them, is Jesus the only way to heaven in which they begin to squirm? And they become unsettled. They begin to stammer and stutter and, and use uh a lot in their speech. Others think the gospel sounds outdated and barbaric. After all, what is all this, what is all this bloody religion about? Our own Michigander, Pastor Rob Bell from Grand Rapids, writes this, God isn't angry with anyone over sin. There is no wrath to be appeased by sacrifice. Christianity's message isn't about repentance for sins. Jesus' sacrifice is about ending the idea that God is angry with anyone. Rob, have you read the Bible lately? Have you, have you read the end of the book? Have you seen how it all comes back? Christ comes in a white robe on a horse with the sword of God's word in judgment, his gown dripped in blood. He is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He is coming. He is coming to judge those who would rebel against his reign. And yes, it is only because of Jesus' sacrifice for us that anyone can be saved. It is one thing to bend under cultural pressure to the point of not sharing the gospel. It is quite another to be so ashamed of it that we twist it and distort it beyond any New Testament meaning whatsoever. Friends, we can't do that. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. We cannot tell people about Christ. And they say, so people who don't hear about Christ die and go to hell, we just say, yeah, you know, I wish it wasn't like that. But that's what the Bible says. No, you say to them, yes, because Jesus alone is Lord of all things. I mean, that's what we've sang all morning, isn't he? He is the Lord of every man, whether they acknowledge it or not. And therefore, his name must be proclaimed to all men. Because he alone died. Revelation 5 says, all of heaven worships and sings and says, Worthy are you, O God, because you were slain for men and redeemed the people for God. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we must proclaim it with confidence. Secondly, we must proclaim the gospel because of its saving power. We must proclaim the gospel because of its saving power. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here is why, at its essence, Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. Here is why he is passionate about telling the gospel. Did you, did you, catch, did you catch those first few verses that Paul is saying, 
Things like, I'm eager to come to you. I long to, I've tried, but have, but have so far been hampered from coming and proclaiming the gospel in Rome. You get this sense in which he's not just like, okay, I've got to go here and I'll preach the gospel. He's like, I want to go there and tell people about Christ. I want to go there and proclaim Jesus. Why? Because Paul knows here is the power of God for salvation. You see, the gospel is not some ethereal spiritual belief or force as as it is in so many other religions. It's not about something that just helps me and the rest of the world can take or leave. The gospel, the gospel presented in the New Testament is not some kind of vague Oprah-like faith that walks along the buffet of world religions picking up whatever it would like to make us feel good about ourselves. Furthermore, it is not an all-positive, permabond, Osteen message that is the equivalent of a religious Twinkie. It is sweet going down, but ultimately unsatisfying for anything that happens in real life. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about a message that has the power to bring dead people back to life. People who are spiritually dead in their sins and on their way to hell, and they have experienced a, a, a new birth. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're talking about, as we read before, a message that brings people from darkness to light. And this is why it is so important that we get the gospel right and that we keep it at the forefront of our ministries and our lives and encourage one another to do the same. If we lose the gospel, we lose the ability to advance God's kingdom. No one gets saved without the gospel coming into their lives. And don't misunderstand. The gospel is not potential power. It is not power in theory. It is actual power to save lives. There is, this, there is this kind of mistaken belief that somehow the gospel comes. You know, the, the old joke, it's like, it's like launching a, a nuclear missile from a submarine. You've got one guy who turns his key, you've got the other guy who turns his key, and then the launch sequence can be activated. And somehow the gospel comes, and that's God's key. And then we are empowered to turn our key. And then somehow salvation is birthed within us. But that's not the gospel presentation. And, and from, from all the way back to some uh, heretical dude named Pelagius, all the way up through the modern area, like, like uh, teachers like Charles Finney, we have this wrong belief that somehow if we just press A and B and C and pull the lever, D will come out. Finney said, producing revival, producing Christians is no different than dropping corn seed in the ground. If you just fertilize it, if you just cultivate it and water it, boom, you have Christians. You have revived people. Friends, that's not the way it works. There is a power that comes only from God through the proclamation of the gospel. That power is the power to enliven dead hearts, to grant salvation and give life to where there is no life. Dead men can't turn keys. God alone is the one who issues forth life in sinners. Salvation comes through the preaching of the gospel. Not, not from good deeds, as important as they are. Not from giving someone a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. It is only through the preaching of the word, Paul says, that the power for salvation comes. You see, as we issue a call for men and women to turn and to repent and believe, God issues a divine call by His Spirit into the hearts of men that they might believe. Again, Peter talks about this uh, later on in his first letter, chapter 3. He tells the Christians, You have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Do you see what Peter is saying? Peter is saying you don't have this imperishable seed like what goes in the ground and will eventually go away. You can plant a flower and it can reproduce, but given the right circumstances, the flower dies, the seed dies, you have no more flower. And Paul says that is not like the seed of the Word of God, which never passes away. He says this gospel seed was preached to you, and he says through that preached Word you were given the new birth. You experienced salvation. And this is why Paul will say later in Romans chapter 10, the famous verse, verse 17, faith, faith for salvation, faith comes through hearing. What are you hearing? Hearing through the word of Christ. This is why the gospel is the saving power of God. It's not our finesse. It's not our skills. It's not even our passion. It's the gospel that saves. It is the gospel that God uses to redeem lives. Many of you will know about the very popular uh, evangelistic tool produced by the Campus Crusade for Christ ministry called the Jesus Film. If you don't know about that, it is a, it is a movie. It's about uh, 45 minutes to an hour long, and it's Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection with him uh, teaching, proclaiming the Word of God with the gospel clearly presented at the end of the film. And uh, this is just overdubbed in every language known to man, and missionaries take this thing with them. Uh, in the old days, it was back on, you know, projectors where they could only hand crank the thing. Now in uh, cultures, they can pop in VHS or DVD or all kinds of things. But several years ago, when the terrorist group, The Shining Path, was active in Peru, there was a couple who had a film projector and the film canisters of the Jesus film, and they were going up out into the villages up in the mountains of Peru to share the gospel with them when this terrorist group, The Shining Path, stopped them on the road and began to take all their belongings. They were lucky not to have their life taken away. Nevertheless, one of the things they picked up was the film projector. And what I can only imagine was a special measure of grace from God. The, the husband became indignant. He said, well, why don't you just take the movie too then? To which the terrorists did not blow his head off, but did take the movie with them. Years later, the missionary received a letter of repentance from one of the members of the Shining Path terrorist group who had been there on that day and had robbed them and took their possessions. He said, in our boredom, we watched the Jesus film seven times. And I was saved. And now I am serving the people of Peru, not as a terrorist, but as a missionary. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Third, we must proclaim the gospel to reveal God's righteousness. We must proclaim the gospel to reveal God's righteousness. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now again, don't just, don't, you know, uh, don't do the kind of stone skipping over the text. Think about what Paul is saying. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you find that surprising that Paul would say that? 
I think most of us, well, I think most of us, if we talk about the gospel, we probably would not talk about the righteousness of God being revealed, would we? We would say something like this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the grace of God is revealed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the love of God is revealed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the mercy of God is revealed. Isn't that more likely something that we would say? Yeah, that's not what Paul says, is it? All those things are true, but Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What is he talking about? Paul is talking about this. God has brought about salvation in a way that allows God to be God. God saves sinners in a way that does not compromise the integrity of his righteous character. In other words, what we need to understand is, it was bound up with the gospel is the very character of God itself and how he went about saving sinners. Specifically, God accomplished salvation in a way that both maintains and reveals that he is a righteous God. He didn't just sweep our sins under the cosmic rug in heaven like dirt under the floor. He didn't just wink at our sins like an elderly grandparent. He didn't just hit backspace, backspace, backspace on some divine computer system somewhere. No, God dealt with our sins by judging them. Our sins were judged, condemned in Christ on the cross. You see, despite what you will read on Wikipedia, despite what you will hear popular preachers saying and what you may even encounter uh, with, with people in other churches, maybe even people in this church, God is more than a gracious, loving, and merciful God. He is those things to generation after generation. But he is more than that as well. He is also a righteous God. He is holy and he is just. And that kind of God can't just forget sin. It is an offense to his very being. His nature requires that he deal with it. And so God didn't just say, don't worry about it. Try it next time. After all, everybody sins. Now, Paul says the gospel brings salvation, shows that salvation was brought about in a way that God is a righteous God. He caused the penalty for my sin to fall on his son so that justice is served. Now, what does that mean for us and how we present the gospel or think about the gospel? At least two things. First of all, of a more pastoral nature, it should give us an unshakable confidence in God and an assurance of our salvation. God didn't change his character on a whim. He didn't say, boy, this is a tough problem. Uh, I better act differently than I would normally act. No, he was consistent with his character as he has always been. And he promises he will for always, uh, he always shall be. But more than that, we should also have confidence that our salvation is not going to go away. The sins that we have committed are not just floating around out there somewhere. They have been definitively and finally judged in Christ. Our debt has been paid, and God will not come collecting twice. But secondly, this truth should also cause us to think twice about ever changing the message of the gospel. Friends, when you're witnessing to someone, when you're talking with someone who is so far from God, they have no idea how close they are to hell, the, the temptation is always there to lower the bar. If you could just get them to say the prayer. Just, just get them to say they believe, to say they trust in Christ. The temptation is always to, to, to take off, to, to rub down the sharp edges of the gospel, to remove the offense of it, to get someone to believe. But here's the reality. If we monkey with the gospel, we deny God's character. If we change the message of the cross, 
And we change the message of who God himself is. He is no longer the righteous God that he says he is. We denigrate the very name and character of God. We are to proclaim the gospel with unashamed confidence. We are to proclaim the gospel because it is the power of God to believe. We are to proclaim the gospel because it reveals the righteous character of God. We are also to proclaim the gospel so that it will be received by faith. We are to proclaim the gospel so that it will be received by faith. Here is the so what of what we're looking at this morning. You know, preaching classes always tell you, you can give good information, you can explain the Bible, but you've got to get to the point where you give the so what. What do I do with this? What difference does it make? And we've sprinkled that through a little bit through the whole thing, but now very specifically, we bring it to a focal point. We all know. It's just a given. That is very popular today to say all religions are, same, are, are going the same way. They're all different paths at the same mountain. If you just believe in something, if you're a good person or, or whatever, you're going to get to paradise, you're going to get to heaven, you'll be okay in the end. The problem with that is the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul doesn't teach that. Jesus doesn't teach that. Look again what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Christ died for sinners, but not every sinner will be saved. For salvation comes by faith. Faith is like a switch that brings power to the light. Faith doesn't earn you salvation. It is simply the means by which salvation is received. Specifically, you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You hear that He came and He died for sinners and rose again incorruptible as the Lord of all things. And you put your trust in that. You put your trust in Christ. You believe that he did what the Bible says he did. That he died for your sins and was raised back to life for your justification. That believing is not just, okay, I get it, mental fact. It's not just like, okay, the battle of Waterloo happened. Big deal. No, it is trusting in such a way that Christ becomes the very foundation of your life. He becomes the greatest treasure that you have. Your best possession. You're throwing everything onto Christ, worshiping Him as Savior and Lord. That is how people come to be saved. And the difficult question, again, that we had our nameless preacher in the introduction ask, and what we are sometimes asked is this, what about those who never hear? What about those who are never told of Jesus? And it's here that Christians balk. At the the mention of the exclusivity of Christ, they kind of, they kind of shiver and they, their eyes get bigger. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to answer the question because it sounds so harsh. And so many will punt and say something like, even if people out there in some tribe somewhere have never heard of Christ, as long as they believe in some kind of a creator God that has been revealed in nature, then God will save them and he will, he will allow them into heaven. The problem with that answer is that the Bible clearly denies it. The Bible clearly says that is not true. We can look at several passages, several examples, but let's just take the example of Cornelius from Acts 10. Here's a Gentile who is actively seeking God the best that he can. He knows enough to believe that the God of the Jews is the one true and living God, so that is the God that he is worshiping. He, is, he has become monotheistic in a pluralistic nation. He is devout in praying and giving alms in the name of the Lord. And then we read, 
that God sends an angel to appear to Cornelius. That angel does not tell him about Jesus. It does not tell him how to be saved. The angel simply says, go find a man named Peter, and he will tell you how to be saved. This is, frankly, this story is one of the reasons why I know sometimes uh, we tend to doubt, and I certainly think that a healthy dose of discernment is important, uh, but not necessarily the point of saying it can never happen, but we hear stories of missionaries who go out and they will have so, sometimes, uh, it's, all, it's always my favorite, uh, assuming it's true, that when it's, it's the very, you know, it's like the, the most old person in the village. You know, it's, it's like the, the 98-year-old wizened lady. And when the missionaries first come in, they talk to her and she says, what message do you have for me? And they're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, for years, I've had a dream that says two white people are going to come and they're going to tell me a message that I will want to hear and believe. So what message do you bring me? And they're like, Jesus, you know, and they get saved. The whole, you know, revival brings in the whole village. I love those kind of stories. People say, oh, you really going to happen? It happened to Cornelius. God sends the president here. He does not, in the dream, give the message of salvation, but he tells them, here is where you need to go and hear it. And so that's exactly what happens here. But we need to make two observations, important observations, about Cornelius. First, as sincere as Cornelius was, as close to the truth as he was, he is the, the poster boy for the not believed in Jesus, but good enough to still get into heaven campaign. And what does God say? He's not saved. As good as he is, as, as, as honorable as he is, as, as, as pious and good-hearted as he is, as much as he is trying to seek me out, he is not saved. And secondly, he was only saved because he heard the gospel. Again, God did not give him the way of salvation in the vision and the dream. He didn't see, Jesus himself did not appear and say, believe in me and you will be saved. No, why? Because in the mystery of God's sovereign will, he has decreed that faith only comes through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God can just appear to everyone simultaneously in the Word and say, here I am, believe in me. But He doesn't do that. He has chosen to use the means of presenting the gospel, specifically His people going next door and out to lunch and down the street and on mission trips across the world proclaiming the gospel. And that is how He brings faith to sinners. Therefore, the clear required immediate implication for our lives is that we should never shrink back in fear or shame from the gospel message, but that we should proclaim it at every chance we get because apart from its proclamation, people will not be saved. And so they will suffer a conscious eternal torment for their defiant rebellion against God and His Lordship. So when people say, doesn't that make God unfair that people have not heard? No, what it means is that his people are sinful because we have not seen the clear command, the clear call, the clear responsibility for us to open our mouths and preach Christ to those that are dying, to those that are perishing. Many of you came out yesterday and helped distribute information that not only invited people to this church on Easter, but presented the gospel to them. And I have to say that the numbers that came out encouraged the heart of at least one pastor of this church, probably all three of them. We were being obedient to the command that we have, but don't allow yourselves to think that's it. 
we've done our bit for king and country. No, that's, that, that's not all there is. The task isn't done. We will never be done in this calling. We will never be done with this priority of proclaiming the gospel until Christ himself returns to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, we need to heed the words of Jesus himself from John chapter 4 as he is talking with the woman at the well, revealing the gospel to her and the disciples are astonished and don't understand why he has this priority, Jesus says to them, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are already white for harvest. Brothers and sisters, we must look around and see hundreds and even thousands of people in this city alone who, should they die today, would spend eternity in hell. We must look up and see that the fields are white for harvest. God has said, I have many people in that city. I must bring them in. Yet how will he do it except through us who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Baptist scholar Carl F.H. Henry said this, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Loved ones, by God's grace, let us work to ensure that it gets there in time. Father, as we are so thankful for your word that came to us, God, and saved us out of our sin, Father, help us not to grow complacent in that. Help us not to take that for granted. But, Father, help us to see that in saving us, you have also called us to have a part in bringing salvation to others. God, that we were saved to proclaim your glory to the nations. Father, we don't have to go across the world to do that. Father, we only need to go next door. Father, help us to be a people of your word. Help us to be gospel people who love to talk about Jesus at every chance we get. Not just because he is the treasure of our lives, but because we are also compassionate and see the future of those who never hear. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.